Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Job, chapter 4. Job, chapter 4. Last week, we studied chapter 3. and We looked at Job's primal scream of anguish and anger. Something that the first two chapters do not prepare us for. After all the disasters that came upon Job, he still retained his integrity. Uh, he said, I, naked I came into the world and naked I go out. You know, the Lord gave, the Lord take it, takes away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And then when his wife says, curse God and die. And he said, shall we just receive good things from God and not trouble? We are not prepared for the words that he speaks in chapter 3. His friends are there. They've heard about his trouble. And they come and they sit with him. They are present with him. They are silent with him for seven days and silent night. Uh, seven nights. And then Job can take it no more. And he speaks what is both a curse as well as lament. He curses the day of his birth and he questions why he is suffering. The key, I think, to chapter 3, we saw last week, is verse number 25. What I have feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. And what he feared and what he dreaded was not the loss of his children, the loss of his possessions, those he would lose one day anyway, either by their death or by his. It is not the loss of physical health, because one cannot stay healthy all the time. What he feared is that God is not who he says he is. God that Job worships turns out to be someone completely different. And in Job's present condition, God is silent, not confirming, yes, I am a good God, I am who I say I am, or don't look at these circumstances, don't listen to them, I'm actually who I say I am. And sometimes we want friends to be silent. We want them just to be there with us. And their, their comfort, their silence, their presence are what we want. But we don't want God to be silent. We want God to speak up to let us know what is going on. Job is desperately trying to put his faith in God together with his circumstances. What he has gone through and what he believes are not coming together. The tension, I think, is unbearable for Job. One writer says it almost drives him mad that he is encountering God in a form that is completely alien to him. Job believes that God is good, but what is going on in Job's life? How do you reconcile God's goodness and God's presence with his silence and his apparent absence in the midst of Job's great difficulty? It is important for us to recognize that Job chapter 3, Job's cry of anguish, is not the beginning, or he does not intend it to be the beginning of a dialogue between himself and his friends. He's not seeking to engage his friends in some theological debate. He's not throwing down the gauntlet and saying, okay, friends, answer this theological dilemma. It is a cry of unimaginable grief and distress. 
And his friends, who very wisely had been quiet for seven days and seven nights, now feel obligated to speak and to give their opinions. If you give me a few minutes, I want to just give you background and introduction to what we will find in the rest of the book of Job, these series of speeches. We find three cycles. It begins with the first friend, Eliphaz the Temanite, who gives his opinion, and then Job responds. Then Bildad gives his opinion, and Job responds. Then Zophar gives his opinion, and Job responds. That's one cycle. And it happens three times. Except by the time we get to the third cycle, Bildad has very little to say in chapter 25, only five verses, and Zophar is, you know, he's done. He has no more to say. It could be that they've not only run out of things to say, they've run out of patience with their friend Job, who who keeps defending himself. I've done nothing wrong. Why have these things happened to me? When we get to chapter 26, uh, Job's third answer to Bildad, it goes on for five or six chapters. It is his longest answer by far. And in fact, in these cycles of dialogue, Job says a lot more than his friends do. In the first cycle, we get their theological positions because each man argues from a different position. Eliphaz, the Temanite, argues that no human, no creature is righteous before God. So, as much as to undercut Job, Job, before you go claiming some righteousness, no one is righteous before God. That's true enough. But Eliphaz uses this in the wrong way. Bildad's position is that God is always just. He never perverts justice. Don't accuse God of somehow tipping the scales of justice in an unfair way. And then Zophar, of the three, his position, I think, is the simplest. It's black and white. It's, it's very clear-cut. God punishes people who do wrong. And Job, look what's happened to you. Therefore, God who punishes evildoers is punishing you. That's what we'll be looking at, the Lord willing, for the next few weeks. In the first cycle, at least, something I want you to keep in mind is as Job responds to his friends, in the first part of his response, he's talking to them. But in the second part, he addresses God. And by the time we get to the end of Job, Job is pretty much ignoring his friends and making his case before God, as though he were in a courthouse before God and he is making his case. All three friends, and I would say four friends, including Job, share the same basic belief. It's found here in chapter 4, verse number 8. This, I think, is what they share as a presupposition. As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. In other words, you reap what you sow. They all hold that position, Job included, which is why Job has such tension in his life, because what he is reaping is not what he sowed. His friends are convinced it is because whatever you sow, that's what you reap. Job, you got trouble. You must have done something bad. That's why these things have happened to you. This principle holds that the universe is a moral universe. It is ordered by a moral God. God is good. God is just. Virtue will be rewarded. Wickedness will be punished. 
Job's friends, when they come to see him, they are shocked. But they come to the same conclusion, Job must have done something terrible, and that is why he is suffering so. The basis for their argument is different, however. While they share this presupposition, they've gone in different directions. Eliphaz bases his argument on spiritual experience. We will look at that today. He's had a vision. One of those ooh experiences. I mean, he goes into great detail. We will read it in a few minutes. Bildad bases his position on tradition. This is what we've always believed. This is tradition. Zophar, sort of the simple one, is dogma. This is our theology. This is the way we believe. And therefore, this is the way things are. We need to be careful, though, and God willing, we will catch each other on this. I think that Job's friends are, in fact, his friends. They don't hate him. They are not trying to add to his misery. They're not kicking him while he's down. They honestly believe that he has done something terrible, and they want him to get right with God. They want him to make amends. They want him to be reconciled to God. They do love him. I'm convinced of that. It's been said, I read this week, that the first rule of ministry, if you're ministering to people who are depressed, the first rule of ministry is that you will not get it right. You won't do it right. That when someone is in distress, there really is no right thing to say, if you wish. Unfortunately, Job's friends, they take that advice for seven days and then they open their mouths and then they blow it. But they not only get it wrong, because you never get it right, but because their theology is so rigid as to become flawed. And, and I hope that we will see that as, as we go through. The first speaker is Eliphaz, the Temanite. He's from the southern part of Palestine. It has been argued that since he is the first one to speak, he is probably the oldest of the three. Um, in, in the ancient world, it would, that would only be uh, right. Some have argued that not only is he the eldest, he is the wisest. Of the three friends, uh, his speeches are longer. Um, they are more articulate. This is a very wise man. His premise is that everyone is guilty of error. Everybody is sin. Everybody. And therefore, we should not be surprised if certain things happen to us. We should not say, I'm a righteous person, things shouldn't happen to me. What we should do is repent and come back to God and be reconciled to Him. Today we will look at chapter 4 in which he sort of lays out his basic premise. We're all sinners, and God punishes sin. The Lord willing, next week we will look at chapter 5, in which he speaks of God's compassion. Yes, we are sinners, but God has compassion, and he wants us to repent. Let's begin by reading the first six verses here of chapter 4. Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, If someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? In other words, Job, I know you're, you're, you're hurting, but if I say something, will this offend you? But who can keep from speaking? 
Think how you have instructed many, how you have strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees. But now trouble comes to you, and you are discouraged. It strikes you, and you are dismayed. Should not your piety be your confidence, and your blameless ways your hope? Eliphaz starts out with deference. Uh, we will see later on in the book that Job is older than the rest of these men, and, and he is seen as being wiser than them. And so they are somewhat deferential as they come up to him. It's, it's very possible that he, in fact, had taught them. He is deferential, but he has to speak. You know, I, I, Job, I just have to say something. I, I just... What we heard in chapter 3, I, I just can't let that go. I have to speak up. In verses 3 and 4, he recalls Job's past. That before all of these things happened to him, Job was a man not only of inner piety, that is his relationship to God, but external as well. He helped those who were in trouble. He taught by example, by discipline, by word. He helped those who were about to stumble because of sin. He was a pillar of the community. But now bad things have happened to Job. And the man who helped others seems unable to help himself. The man who strengthened others seems unable to help or to strengthen himself. He is discouraged. He is dismayed. Uh, in Hebrew, it is... A, he has fear that is close to panic. He encouraged others when they were in distress. Now he is overwhelmed. And Eliphaz suggests, suggests that what Job should begin to do is to consider and, and, and to look at what he had done in the past. And, and that should give him confidence. His piety, his uh, inner response to God, that this should have kept him from saying those terrible things he said in chapter 3. By the way, the issue of piety is important to Eliphaz's position. It will come up in all three cycles. But by the end, by the third cycle, he's not giving Job any credit, any piety whatsoever. But here he starts out by saying, you, you did have a right relationship to God. You did have a right relationship to your fellow man. And that should have somehow encouraged you in the midst of these difficulties. Faith leads to hope. And hope gives us a certain resilience in the face of difficulties. Job, you, should, you shouldn't have said those things in chapter 3. You should, in fact, have encouraged yourself. You who encouraged others should have done the same for yourself. That's where he begins. But now he spells out the doctrine of retribution, beginning in verse number 7. And remember that Verse number eight is the key to this, this section. Consider now who being innocent has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God they are destroyed. At the blast of his anger they perish. The lions may roar and growl, yet the teeth of the great lions are broken. The lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. Since Job will not think about his past, Eliphaz is, okay, 
meet my eyes, consider this. I want you to think about this. I want you to meditate on this. And it begins with two rhetorical questions, questions which expect or require a negative answer. Who, being innocent, has ever perished? And the expected answer is no one. Where were the upright ever destroyed? And again, the expected answer is never. Nowhere has any righteous person been destroyed. This opens the door. The hinting is beginning that, Job, you were a righteous man, and that should have encouraged you, but now consider this, that the righteous, they don't suffer these things. The upright don't go... And already he is beginning to suggest that Job is not the righteous or the pious man that he thinks he was. It is a fundamental law in nature that what you plant is what you harvest. But it is much more than simply natural law. In verse number 9, we find that God participates. See, God did not simply create the world, wind it up like a watch, and now it's simply cause and effect. You know, if you plant tomatoes, you harvest tomatoes. If you sow sin, you reap disaster. No, it isn't simply that. In in verse number 9, God participates in the process. He isn't absent. He is in the process. And he, in fact, administers judgment and justice so that people who are sinners receive their due reward. Verses 10 and 11 are somewhat puzzling because Eliphaz, who makes use of all different types of literary devices, uses an ancient proverb that really means little or nothing to us. Uh, We think of lions as being in Africa, but there were lions in Palestine at that time, and, and people were familiar with the concept of lions being out in the field. I think the implication is that a lion is ferocious and he makes a loud noise, but without his teeth, he can't survive. He can still be ferocious and he can still roar, uh, but all he can do is roar. He can't get food and his lioness, his mate, and his cubs suffer. Now getting back to what he said in verses 8 and 9, but particularly verse number 8. What Eliphaz says is correct. We live in a moral universe. Psalm 1, a psalm that opens the book of Psalms, really calls us to make a choice. Do you want to be someone who delights in the law of God? And we are told that those who delight in the law of the Lord, whatever they do, prospers. And we are told, reject the way of sinners. Do not be a wicked person. They are like the chaff that the wind blows away. In the psalm, Psalm 1 ends, For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Paul wrote to the Galatians centuries later, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whatever you sow, that's what you're going to reap. There is a moral principle in the universe. There will be a moral judgment. It matters how we live. We reap what we sow. So Eliphaz is right in this. But in another sense, he's completely wrong because what he has done is he has flipped this principle to see, or he actually turn it up on its head. Because what he believes is not only do you reap what you sow, okay, but you can only reap what you sow. In other words, if you do good, you will get good. You do bad, you'll get bad. 
He fails to take into account that it is possible to sow what is right and still reap something that you did not sow. For him, everything you reap must be the result of what you have sown. We, the readers, we know this is not the case. We know that Job is not reaping what he sowed. He is reaping what Satan did to him. But Eliphaz has begun with a theological principle, one that we accept, but he has in some ways absolutized it. He sort of turned it around, and now he's arguing not from theology, but from logic. Causal logic, cause and effect. God's universe is cause and effect, and I see the effect, therefore I know what the cause is. We need to be clear that when we say you reap what you sow, that is a statement of faith. Because many of us will not be on this planet long enough to see people reap what they've sown. Beyond that, there is a judgment after this life in which people will ultimately reap what they have sown. We believe that God is a good and sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe. He knows what is best for his people. We believe that God judges the world justly. But we also believe that we don't know what is best for us. We also believe that we cannot see all the time how God is ruling the world. For Eliphaz, and I would argue for his two companions, he begins with theology and he continues with logic. A living, breathing, vibrant faith based on a theological principle and the goodness and the graciousness of God has now become dead orthodoxy. It has been rationalized. It has become a logical formula, a mathematical formula. We must beware. And if this is, I think, the only thing we learn from Job, this is a pretty important thing to learn that we cannot apply our human logic logic to God's ways. We cannot apply human reason to God's ways and say, this is the way God acts. That's what Eliphaz has done. And so he can only come to one conclusion. Job, you sin big time. That's why these things have happened to you. Blaise Pascal, who lived in the 17th century, really before the rise of the Enlightenment, said, Reason's last step is the recognition that there are an infinite number of things which are beyond it. It is merely feeble if it does not go as far as to realize that. If natural things are beyond it, what are we to say about supernatural things? For Pascal, reason was great, but the last great thing that reason did or could do for us is to say, there's a whole world out there of things that reason cannot understand. And if that is true about the natural world, how much more about God's dealings, God's supernatural dealings in the world? For that reason, reason itself or logic cannot be the final authority. It cannot be. And right reason recognizes this. I mean, good reason recognizes I, I can't figure everything out. We live at the, ed- the end of an age which thrived on reason, the, the age of reason. 
age that worshipped reason, that believed everything could be figured out through human reason. We are now entering an age that rejects reason. As God's people, we find ourselves, I think, in a very delicate position. Because in the old age, we were fighting against those who worshipped reason. And if we were not careful, we would reject reason itself. But now we come into an age that rejects reason, and we're fighting for reason. Reason is not bad, but it is limited. It is very limited. And God's people, I think, should see that. Eliphaz, unfortunately, has turned his living faith into cold logic. Mathematical precision. These things have happened to you because you have committed X number of sins or X amount of sin or some terrible sin. That's why this has happened to you. And if you look at verse number 8, he says, I have observed. He's a wise man. He's looked at human history. He's looked at the things around him. And he has concluded rationally, logically, this is the way things are. I plant tomatoes, I get tomatoes. I plant an apple tree, I get apples. You plant sin, you get disaster. Now, Job, I don't know what you planted, but I see what you harvested, and therefore I can only conclude one thing. You planted some terrible sin. But it's interesting that Eliphaz only begins here. Uh, I think Bildad and so far will we'll take it a bit further. He goes beyond ordinary human experience to supernatural or extraordinary human experience. He has a vision. Look, if you would, beginning in verse number 12. A word was secretly brought to me. My ears caught a whisper of it. Amid disquieting dreams in the night, when deep sleep falls on men, fear and trembling seized me and made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face, and the hair on my body stood on end. It stopped, but I could not tell what it was. A form stood before my eyes, and I heard a hushed voice. He spends half of his time describing this this, this vision that in the middle of the night when everyone's deep in sleep he woke up and he was shaking and he felt something go past him and his hair stood up on end and then this voice this is what this voice said to him in this vision beginning of verse 17 can a mortal be more righteous than God can a man be more pure than his maker if God places no trust in his servants if he charges his angels with error how much more those who live in houses of clay, whose foundations are in the dust, who are crushed more readily than a moth. Between dawn and dusk they are broken to pieces, unnoticed they perish forever, are not the cords of their tent pulled up so that they die without wisdom. In the first part he describes the vision, in the second part the content of the vision. The description of the vision I think is intended for effect. I didn't know how to write it in my notes, but basically it's one of those, you know, those spooky things where it's in the middle of the night and it's dark. You know, back before they had electricity, you wake up in the middle of the night and it's really dark, and then all of a sudden you feel something go past your face, and your hair stands up, and then 
You think you see the form, but then you hear the voice. And this is what the voice says to you. I, I think there, there are things that we find in common between what Eliphaz experiences and what the prophets do in the Old Testament. I think the one thing they have in common, if Eliphaz is telling the truth, and by the way, I don't think he is, but that's my opinion. Uh, the vision did not happen because he wanted it to. In pagan cultures, uh, the, Delphi, uh, the Delphi Oracle, for example, they would go and try to get an answer from the gods. Old Testament prophets, God's prophets, they weren't waiting for a vision. It comes to them. The initiative belongs with God. God sends the vision to them. That seems to be the case with Eliphaz, that he wasn't waiting for a vision. It simply came to him. So in that sense, I think um, he sort of stands in the line of Old Testament prophets. But there is, I think, a very big difference. And the biggest difference is the content of his message. More often than not, a prophet in the Old Testament would speak as one commissioned by God. And they would say, this is what God says. And it would address a contemporary historical situation. It would be very specific. This is what you people are supposed to do. With the case of Eliphaz, we're not sure this is God. We just know that a spirit brushed past his face and, and he heard the spirit say these things. Um, but we're not sure it is God. And, and Eliphaz doesn't say, thus saith the Lord. He's simply, this is what the spirit said to me. And secondly, what the spirit says to him I'm sorry, it's not that profound. Okay? It's not some secret knowledge that God has revealed. It's what Eliphaz had observed in human society already. That nobody is perfect before God. I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist. You don't have to be a seminary uh, professor, a theologian to know this. And so, uh, most commentaries, uh, one of the things they note about this, this vision is it's pretty bland pretty boring and I think the point is not what the vision said because I think Eliphaz made it up personally I think what he's doing is he's saying listen I'm not simply arguing based on human reason and human observation I have revealed knowledge I have a revelation from God and you know if somebody says that God has revealed something to them we are very hesitant how do we argue with that? If God said something, I don't know, it sort of stops people in their tracks. This is a side note, something I didn't intend to say, but much of what passes for prophecy today, particularly in the charismatic movement, uh, is very similar to what we find with Eliphaz. It's pretty bland, pretty boring, stuff that you find in Scripture already. Uh, and in that sense, I don't think we need uh, people to have things revealed by God, it's already been revealed in Scripture. His vision says this. Can someone who is mortal, someone who is created by God, be more righteous than God, more pure than the Maker? As I said, Eliphaz steps out of cold logic and now he gets into the realm of the Ooh, you know, hair standing up, supernatural ooh, feeling that is very, very hard to argue against. I think in many ways he overstates the case. 
I think he he says too much. Because he argues that we are not more righteous than God. Well, we know that, okay? We are sinners because of Adam and Eve. But he says he charges his angels with errors. Now, there are two, two categories of angels. Those whom God has kicked out and those whom God has kept with him. And those whom God has kept in, the, uh, in heaven with him, they are without sin. But Eliphaz, in trying to make his case, gets a big old brush and just paints the whole universe and says, all of God's creatures, they are sinners. They are less than pure. Only God himself can be pure. So when he paints even the angels as being in error, it is to cut off Job from Job saying, well, wait a minute. I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't. I don't deserve this. I did not do anything wrong. Eliphaz says, listen, are you kidding me? You who lives in a house of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, we came from dust, we're going back, we can be broken as easily as a moth, we're like a tent that the wind comes along and uh, you know, sort of pulls up the cords and we just blow away. You haven't done anything wrong? The angels have done stuff wrong. How can you claim to be without error? This is how Eliphaz begins this first cycle. And somewhat difficult. I've already gone past time and we're just sort of getting started. But these speeches are are long and we have to break them up into segments. But the Lord willing, next week we will finish Eliphaz's first speech. But I would remind you that this is a man who is trying to comfort Job. He wants Job to acknowledge his position. That is, what you sow, you reap. And Job, what you have reaped is unbelievable. It's so much so that Eliphaz sat there for seven days and seven nights and couldn't say a word. So you must have done something horrible. And I love you, Job. You are my friend. I want you to repent. And when we come to chapter 5, God is a God of compassion. God will forgive your sins. Job, you need to get right with God. Eliphaz, I think, when he came on the scene, was shocked first by Job's condition. I'm always amazed. I think when someone is in the hospital, it's easier to be the person in the bed than it is to be the person coming to see them. Because when you're, when you're lying there, you know you don't feel well, but you don't know what you look like. And then people come in and see you, and boy, <laughs> their faces give it away. They're shocked. Eliphaz is shocked at what he sees with his dear friend. But greater than that, he cannot believe what he hears Job say. Uncreate the day I was born. Let it be darkness and not light. And he's afraid that Job is going over the edge. And he's reaching out to pull him back. But Job is right and Eliphaz is wrong. That's what the whole book of Job is about. And the Lord willing, we will learn from it. Let's pray together. Father, given a lot of information, and I hope by your grace we would retain some of it that which is important for us. 
<clears throat> to acknowledge that we are made in your image and we do have reason, but reason is limited. We should not absolutize it or make it divine. That our faith should be in you, our hope in you, and not in our ability to reason. Father, help us to have the wisdom to speak when we should and to keep silent when we should. Again, we thank you for Rob and Stacy and ask that you would go with them as they travel. Give them wisdom, give them safety. We ask that your grace and your spirit would go with us as we leave this place today. We pray this in Jesus' name.